self-governance while at the same time being able to accept lots of different kinds of people, live within larger social structures, um, conceive of ourselves as part of a collect as a part of a much bigger collective than just our extended family or kin group networks um, uh, while at the same time exercising uh, democratic self-governance valuing things like bottom-up organizations you know flatter hierarchies things like that things that fly in the face of conservative beliefs which are all about uh, establishing hierarchy, all about establishing, uh, you know, small, tight, uh, networks of in groups and out groups. Um, and then basing it on really bad science, like this Dunbar number or evolutionary psychology or whatever. If we aren't limiting ourselves to that number do, does also allow us to think deeper about this, right? Uh, in the ways that you're laying out before, like, you know, as they point out, like cities are clearly material things, but they're not eternal things. And they also have power and permeance that transcends your ability to be in them. Because let's face it, like, you're not going to meet most of the people in a city. You're not going to spend most of your time in the city, even if you live there. You know, everyone who's there is not there all year, year round, everyone is there is not meeting everyone year round, right? The, the most people don't travel even to most of the city. They don't travel to places outside of their own neighborhood. May not even be familiar with most places beyond where they work, where they live and where they sometimes will spend time socializing with people. Right. Um, as a result, it's weird to see this in cities and think ancient cities were differently. Right. Um, as they write, Aristotle would talk about how Babylon was so large that two or three days after it had been captured by foreign armies, some parts of the city still hadn't heard the news. And so from the perspective of someone who's in a, living in an ancient city, they write, the city itself was not so entirely different from earlier landscapes of clans or moieties that extended across hundreds of miles. It was a structure raised primarily in the human imagination, which allowed for the possibility of amicable relations with people they had never met. And talked about how for mo- most of mi- uh, we, you know, we've talked about previously in our chapter four episode about how geographically human range of mobility and ability to move and their freedom to move has declined over time, right, and shrunk, and that the cultural areas covered continents that the Mesolithic and Neolithic eras, uh, culture zones uh, covered uh, wider areas in the home area of uh, most contemporary ethno-linguistic groups, they write, um, and that cities are still, cities are important, but they're also part of the reason why there was a contraction, right? Because a lot of people end up spending most of their lives in a very small radius. So what's, you know, what's going on here is that we're seeing before our eyes that cities are in a great deal things that live in the imagination, right? Phys- physically, you're b- you know, with bounded within a certain space, social worlds never colliding, imaginary groups all around you, not interacting with you at any point, really. So what has changed? And as they look here at the archaeological records, they're trying to look at settlements that were, you know, had tens of thousands of people, and these start to emerge about 6,000 years ago in isolation on every continent and then multiplying. What they write, uh, one thing, one of the things that makes it so difficult to fit what we know about them into an old-fashioned evolutionary sequence where cities, states, bureaucracies, and social classes all emerge together 
is just how different these cities are. It's not just that some early cities lack class divisions, wealth monopolies, or hierarchies of administration. They exhibit such extreme variability as to imply, from the very beginning, a conscious experimentation in urban form. And so contemporary archaeology shows, among other things, that surprisingly few of these cities contain signs of authoritarian rule. It also shows that their ecology was far more diverse than one believed. Cities do not necessarily depend on a rural hinterland in which serfs or peasants engage in backbreaking labor, hauling in cartloads of grain for consumption by urban dwellers. Certainly, that situation became increasingly typical in later ages, but in the first cities, small-scale gardening and animal keeping were often at least as important. So too were the resources of rivers and seas, and for that matter, the continued hunting and collecting of wild seasonal foods and forests or in marshes. The particular blend depended on depended largely on where in the world the cities happened to be, but it's become increasingly apparent that history's first city dwellers did not always leave a harsh footprint on the environment or on each other. And so this raises questions about, you know, what it lo- was like to live in these sorts of cities. Part of the limit here is you can't really talk about this in this book as they lay out because there are entire books dedicated to what it was like to live in certain geographical areas. What was it like to live in a city in sub-Saharan Africa? What was it like to live in a city before a certain religious movement took uh, root? What was it like to live in a city that was in uh, between two various culture zones? Like there's a lot of, there's a lot that we can't touch on. But they do also point out that beyond that, there is a limitation in like what we are able to know or intuit or speculate on safely. We may not be able to reconstruct how life exactly was in these first cities, but we what we do know is a lot, enough to su- suggest that conventional wisdom is ridiculous, right? And as we've talked about before in the previous two chapters, you can still intuit or determine and arrive at a lot of conclusions based on how the settlements are constructed, based on what materials can be found, based on where the dead are buried, based on where the city is actually located, based on what remains on the art, based on what uh, we can find of refuse, based on where we can find, you know, basically remnants. You can still learn a lot about the the construction of the city, who lived where, why did they live there, how did they live there, um... And and so and so, this next section kind of dives into this, uh, trying to answer these questions about why these cities became permanent year-round settlements. Um, and it's a very. Uh, I'll quickly say as well. I mean, one of the things, and we'll and they'll get to this point, you know, uh, you know, later in the chapter. But the uh, when, when there are states or state-like things, you know, whether it's you know uh, royalty, kings. You know, so you've got the palaces, right? Or whether it's a, you know, religious sects that um, exert a lot of top-down centralized power. So you've got the palaces, right? Or things like that, uh, the temples and the palaces. Those things, you know, the the evidence of that, like, state-like, top-down centralized administration is big. It's present. It's unmissable. Which is why the theories were for so long that, cities cities gave rise to states and states gave rise to cities is because you know there's a lot of 
our archaeological evidence of that of those kinds of big public works, the big palaces and the big temples um, that are uh, evidence of top-down centralized state-like power. Um, but as we'll get into, uh, you know, the evidence of cities um, without states. Uh, you know, it's not as obvious, right? And so if you're not paying attention, you're going to miss it. Um, and But th this is really crucial, um, and, and this is what we'll get into. I just really wanted to to underline that. As it, it, you know, it's that, that joke that I've made many times before of, like, the drunk guy who's looking for his keys, you know, dropped his keys, he's looking for them, uh, you know, is on his hands and knees under a street light searching for his keys, and someone comes up and says, Oh, you, you, you lose something? Can I help you find it? You know, it's like, yeah, I lost my keys. And the guy's like, oh, did you drop them here? Here, let me, uh, let me help you. He's like, no, I didn't drop them here, but this is where the light is, you know? So this is, <laughs> and, and so, you know, it, it's, it's that old thing of like a lot of the archaeological record is like, they're looking where the light is, you know, they're looking where the big evidence, the big apparent you know, the monuments, the palaces, the temples, and then from there saying, oh, this must be the origins of cities because I'm looking under the streetlight and this is what I'm finding. With more contemporary and sophisticated methods of archaeological research, um, we are instead able to find all the other stuff that is much older, that, pre that predates that, but is not illuminated by the streetlights of these big public works. Um, and this is what a lot, that's what a lot of this chapter, that, that kind of evidence is, is based on and, and why it's, you know, kind of causing us to rethink the conventional wisdom that was held for so long. So long.